Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Catherine Collette. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, that these are unceded lands and the treaty has never been made in Australia. Catherine Collett is a novelist, a podcaster and an engineer living in Melbourne. Her debut novel was The Helpline and she's joining us today with her new novel, The Competition. The Competition centres around the Speechmakers Annual Conference and Competition. Francis didn't enter for the camaraderie, nor the opportunity to attend workshops on timing your use of cliches. No, this year, Speechmakers is offering $40,000 to the winner, and that would go a long way to setting Francis up and convincing her parents that she isn't failing at life. Keith has mentored Francis in getting this far, but as her competition, he can't reasonably want her to win. The money would be nice, but for Keith, the glory of being a speechmaker's champion would finally show people he's got what it takes. As the competitors line up, only to fall each round, there's rumblings that this year there's more changing in speechmakers than just the prize money. Could it be that the organisation isn't what it used to be? Join me as we discover Catherine Collette's The Competition. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the show Catherine Collette. Catherine's a novelist, a podcaster, an engineer living in Melbourne. Her debut novel is The Helpline, and she co-hosts, we absolutely love it, a book podcast. It's called The First Time. She co-hosts it with Kate Mildenhall. But Catherine is joining me today with her new novel. It is called The Competition. Now, Catherine, it is so great to welcome you back. Thanks for coming on Final Draft. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm very excited to be here. I here is actually in my own house. <laughs> I just, I am kind of loving all the people I get to speak to face to face because of Zoom, which is, you know, something that we, we weren't always able to do. Yeah, it's incredible. Reading the competition, just such a lovely kind of summer read. You're my first interview for the year. It's great to kick off. And the competition was just such a pleasure over those January days. But I couldn't help but notice a few similarities between the helpline and the competition. Now, the definite article notwithstanding, there is also a strong underlying theme of the ways that we communicate and what makes for effective communication. But Let's get started properly. I'd love for you to introduce the competition. And I'm not sure how you want to do this. Like, do you want to do like a seven to nine minute prepared or are you just going to go impromptu? (laughs) That is a very, uh, yeah, good question. I feel like this is an impromptu, but I am pretty across my topic, which helps. Uh, The competition is set in what I would describe as the very weird world of competitive public speaking. So some of your listeners might've heard of Toastmasters. The competition takes place in a Toastmasters like world. So Toastmasters is a public speaking club and uh, the competition is set in speech makers, quite similar. Um, And basically it takes place across, across three days at a national public speaking competition. 
And uh, it follows a couple of different competitors, but mainly two. One is a young woman in her early 20s. She's a former debater. She's had a bit of a fall from grace. Uh, Her name is Frances. And the other is Keith, a recent retiree who's obsessed with speechmakers and thinks if he wins, he will win back the affection of his wife. Yeah, let's go to Francis and Keith. The li- I, I'm describing him as the likably unlikable Francis and Keith, or perhaps the unlikably likable. And the ten- <laughs> there's this tension, the tension between their endearing and their grating traits is kind of central to how the competition unfolds. But let, let me ask you, am I, am I making a fair judgment here? Are they a little bit unlikable? Are they a little bit likable? I love that duality. I think that's a great description. And I think it holds true of the setting speechmakers as well. I really like that line that you kind of cross and come back and cross and come back between uh, likability and unlikability and endearingness and kind of people behaving badly. Um, Yeah, I think that's very true. So what's it like then? working with characters that you know are going to maybe put the reader off a little bit, even if it's just a little. Like, How do you strike the balance without falling either into caricature or, or maybe even kind of villainy? Um, well, I think of Keith, for example. So Keith is like a speech maker's obsessive and aspects of Keith are definitely modelled on people perhaps that I had uh, witnessed in that Toastmasters-type setting. Um, Toastmasters is quite rule-based, so there's a particular type of of member, and I think this probably holds true in in lots of different settings, that is, you know, quite attached to the rules, thinks there's a correct way of doing things. Mm. Um, And so that's Keith, but I guess his arc as a character is that is presented as um, kind of a negative to begin with. But I think not only does he kind of evolve to let go of some of the rules and to break some of the rules, I think you also see the value of rules in some ways. And so um, I think you can both critique something and actually say, you know, there's something wrong with being like this, but also at the same time say, but there's actually also something right with being like this. And I like to have those those two perspectives on the same thing. Okay. Now I'm going to prove that I was paying attention during the seminar on the judicious use of a good cliche. How do you balance? Because this is not just Francis and Keith. Across your novels, I notice you are very good at... Um, giving us either point of view or perspective narration that is what's and all. You are not afraid to show us even perhaps more endearing characters, less endearing traits. Again, how do you balance that? But why, also, why is that important? You know, there are no, I don't think there, I've, uh, there is a paragon in any of your novels and that's what makes them really kind of wonderful because we are able to go back and forth between all your characters. Oh, thank you. It's a great compliment. Um, I guess, I mean, that's maybe a question about how I think about character. And I think good characters are rounded. And um, I like that process of exploring why a person would be a certain way. Um, I think that, yeah, I think there are events in our lives that, 
you know, have a profound impact for certain reasons. Um, and often the event itself, it's not the event that has inherent meaning, but it's the meaning that we attach to it. And I think people can attach aspects of personality to events or say, I am like this because of this. Um, and so I like that process of unpacking a character. Um, I think a character, like everybody, like a person would, you would love to be only endearing, mm. but it's a bit like an Instagram feed that's perfect. You kind of need a bit of grit uh, to create sympathy, I think. That is a, like we could characterise your your novels as kind of the anti-gram where, where they are, you know, these perfectly manicured moments of life. You are able to show us real life in moments. Um, it, is, it is really hard to know whether to focus on Francis or Keith because uh, both they exhibit this assuredness that seems to be hiding uh, like a real anxiety or maybe a fear that people might not even regard them. And I, I was tossing over, but rather than spoil any plot points or even ignore one, for the other, I wanted to ask about their relationship because, of course, having these incredibly deep characters, what the, the fascination is in watching them evolve and watching their relationship evolve, and especially the way they come to regard each other and the difficulties that they have. Despite you know the communication training, they're they're speech makers. They know how they they tell themselves they know how to communicate. Um, how they evolve and come to express themselves more openly. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I think of that speechmaker's setting is that emphasis on communication. It requires people to tell their stories. And I think it's very easy at face value to, you know, read Keith as always oh, uh, maybe an older guy who's fastidious and obsessed with certain things or Francis is young and kind of cranky or negative but you literally have people getting up on stage and talking about themselves. And I think that can't help but be endearing. And it's certainly something in going to, you know, as part of research and just as part of life to a public speaking club and watching people learn to speak. Um, you know, it's a, a public, and I sort of talk about this in the book, like the point of a public speaking club is that speech making thing, but you spend most of your time listening and that act of listening is can actually be really profound. Um, and I think you see that also in workplaces in that you have certain places in life where you come into contact with people, not necessarily that you would choose. Mm. And um, it's easy to write a stranger off and say we have nothing in common, but to get to know someone and to maybe not, you know, gel with them completely, but you can't help but discover, oh, I understand that of that person or I do, you know, I have not had that experience, but I can empathise in these ways. And I think for Francis and Keith, they, you know, they get to know each other and come to a mutual respect or a mutual understanding and appreciation of each other. I think this idea about listening is possibly the most powerful thing that you have to say in the competition. And this is this is a book that has so much to say, so many different threads and stories. But in my notes, I, I was going to culminate with a question about listening, but I don't care when we talk about it because it is so very important. And it's discussed throughout, but very early on, Keith highlights 
his experience of speechmakers that it doesn't work without people doing a lot more listening than they do talking. And in fact, you know, you, you could you could a simple equation would tell us that in a room of 10 people, you are only going to talk one-tenth of the time and then 90% of the time you really should be listening or you're probably talking over someone. Um, it, it, it also helps him come to the realisation, like, he's a pretty conservative guy. Speechmakers is or was a pretty conservative organisation that was actually transformed. And we're, we're, we'll clarify that we're talking about speechmakers, not Toastmasters here. You're, but it was transformed by the listening to a broad range of voices. Why was listening so important? Like, what what did you learn about listening through your experience with Toastmasters? And what do you want to communicate to your readers? The, I guess when I started Toastmasters um, and – and I, I think, you know, probably I'm not the only one that has sort of had this initial impression. Uh, the act of learning to public speak is inherently awkward. So it's a very awkward setting to begin with. Uh, Toastmasters, I think, kind of enhances this awkwardness through having lots of view rules and bureaucracy and um, it is really welcoming and encouraging. And so you have this, I mean, it's really an environment that's easy to satirize, but very early on, um, like my first or second meeting that I went to, there was a woman there who was standing up and she was taking what was called the Toastmasters Pledge, which is where you join and you say, I'm going to be a, a member of this club and um, I'm going to put a lot of effort in and all this sort of stuff. And uh, she was a transgender woman and I got to know her over time. And basically she was in the process of transitioning and this was the first place that she was doing that. So outside of that room and that, you know, that time slot once a week, she was kind of someone else. Um, and that always really struck me as a profound thing because I could immediately see why she would pick this place to do that because it was so welcoming, because it was so accepting. And that struck me that, you know, you have, it's easy to say it's kind of ridiculous, but at the same time, how beautiful there is literally no other place that I can imagine that is, like that, that would feel so safe and so accepting. And over time, that really, that idea just kept coming up to me in sitting in a room and listening to people. And that idea of, you know, if there are 10 people in the room, you get one tenth of that time to talk. That again is something that doesn't happen in any other spaces. Usually it's the loudest person or the person with the most status um, that gets to talk. And so it, it is a place where people find their voice. Um, and I was always really attracted to that. And I never wanted to lose sight of that in the book. And I think that feels particularly profound now in the context of COVID when there is a real lack of social connection and cohesion. And I'm, as you say, in Melbourne, I have experienced a lot of time in lockdowns and in lockdown, you can, turn off. You can literally not engage with anyone who has a different point of view to you. Um, so that act of being in a room with someone and having to listen to them um, feels even more profound. It's also interesting to think about the, the fact of 
lockdown has given us these platforms. I'm not going to keep giving free advertising to a particular platform just because we're using it, but it's given us these platforms where we are literally fragmented into evenly sized boxes and we have the technology to impose our will to speak. And yet how much more beautiful it is when we we inherently understand uh, as a respectful form of just like human interaction that we take our turn to talk but that we also take our turn to listen. And I mean, I just, I think that's that's really wonderful when you are in a great conversation, it happens naturally and you don't have to be clicking everyone's little microphone to stop them talking over. Mm. I mean, like online platforms are interesting too, I think, mm. just even from that introvert, extrovert perspective because you have functions like chat functions that are mm. happening alongside the meeting. Like I think mm. they're really set up to um, cater for for people's needs. Uh, but Toastmasters and speech makers, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I don't want to use those terms interchangeably because speech makers is a fictitious entity mm. and it's an exaggerated entity in some ways, but that um, egalitarian element mm. to it, I think is um, something that I definitely stole from, from Toastmasters. Brilliant. It's because I want to pick up on that egalitarian element and also, like I'm aware that this is an element of the competition that was not inspired by Toastmasters. So please no angry Toastmasters writing in. Um, so, but the theme of organizational manipulation and potential corruption, which goes against the idea of egalitarianism, the idea that someone will be in charge and someone will take the benefit and maybe even someone will talk over. You did deal with similar themes again in the helpline. I, I wanted to ask, what are you seeing in the world that is making this bubble up in your writing? Yeah, I think um, I spent, I mean, I work as an engineer um, and I have done for a pretty long time, but I did have a period of time where I worked in council in a community development team. I was doing more research sort of stuff, but it was real grassroots Um it was a job where you got to witness, I guess, community groups, but also the politics of local government. Um, so you had in a in a in a real kind of microcosm this political element and this community element butting heads. And I think it was a really nice setting to see the power of people kind of bonding together, um, and that you know, kind of David and Goliath thing where Goliath is the institution and you have um, fairly ordinary people but that can do fairly profound things, um, albeit in both of those books on, um, you know, smaller stages. Uh, yeah, I think that's interesting to me because I think that it's easy to see the world as big and there's nothing that I can do to profoundly impact it. Um, but I think people do do that stuff all the time. Mm. Let's come back to the narrative itself, the story. In the competition, I mean, it's it's quite brilliant what you do. It's sort of almost like the best, um, the best kind of golden age crime fiction where you create a self-contained ecosystem where we are dry, so we're, we're within the competition, we're within the, the Speechmakers three-day conference competition – and you drive us towards a conclusion, which is 
going to be the final day of competition, the announcement of the winner. You make us care about different people. It's by no means a foregone conclusion that we we want Keith or Francis to win. There are other people that we're kind of rooting for. And you take us into the nitty-gritty of competitive speaking, which I think some people some people feel they're not natural speakers, some people are, but you show us that there is real strategy. First tell me a little bit about like like this was something this was something you learnt. Were you a natural? Have you exaggerated features of this? Is this a real part of the competitive speaking world? I did do competitive speaking. Mm. I did it initially out of interest and then I was, you know, really was like, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to go all in. And I interviewed a lot of people who had done really well on the competition circuit. So I think there's a degree of accuracy to those things. There's definitely a lot of strategy in public speaking Mm -hmm. in um, the competition style that I went in. uh, The intent is to be as inspirational as possible, which is kind of a funny thing in that competitive environment, it's like the antithesis in some ways. Um, But the best speeches are really personal stories that then have a broader meaning. So you might have a marathon runner that learns the beauty of standing still. Um, There's a a bit of a trope in some uh, speaking competitions about the death speech. So, um, you know, someone will tell a story and everything's going on swimmingly, along swimmingly, and then someone dies and that, act of someone dying becomes a really profound thing because it, you know, similarly teaches you about life. Um, so, so those things are true, um, but it feels a bit almost surgical when you look at the kind of dynamics of how to be inspiring. Um, and I think there's a lot of potential for humor in that. Um And I think also just the idea of competition is something that really appeals to me because it feels very arbitrary and uh, it feels often like it is a bit meaningless, but we're obsessed with it at the same time. And so that pursuit of something, like I think of Keith, who's wanted to win this competition for such a long time because he thinks if he wins, it will mean this, but will it <laughs> you know and i think that's sort of the journey that he grapples with as he as he gets close to attaining his goal he has to reconcile the fact that maybe it doesn't mean what he thought it meant um, I, lo- I loved it i loved it i did debating at high school and i was this absolute hot mess of a speaker on stage because i had essentially signed up to skive off class like I, I I heard oh so so I I can I can go to other schools I can meet other I went to a boys class like I can meet girls um and I would just I would jump around on stage I would not be well presented because I had my long hair and I ref- I, I would always wear shorts I refused to dress up and I it never occurred to me other than having a bit of fun I would I would speak about things that I was deeply ignorant about and all of this <laughs> All of this structure uh, was was so fascinating to me. Things that as an adult I can recognise, but when I, I look back, you know, there was probably elements of, of Francis in me, me and Francis. Um, I just, I was fascinated by it. 
Debating is great. That's one of my great regrets that I didn't do debating because I think I would have really liked it. But um, I also went to an all-girls school and I think debating has a heightened level of popularity in single-sex schools for exactly that reason. Mm -hmm. Like you have so few opportunities to mix with the opposite sex. (laughs) Yeah. Debating becomes this hotbed of... um, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, when our, when our, when our soccer team made it to the state cup, they hired buses and took hundreds of us out to watch the game. When we made the state final, I, I think, I think maybe one teacher got a car full to come and watch us. So it, I don't, I don't know. Like popular is just, it's, it's such an open don't, word. Don't shatter the dream, Andrew. <laughs> all, all you, all you debaters out there, you keep going. A part of, a part of this, this um, strategy though is, well, there was this, there's this fascinating philosophical debate that I saw raging through the competition. I'm going to characterize it as style versus substance, but there's a moment where Francis is given advice that the judges aren't really listening to what she's saying so much as how she's presenting the information. And it leads to this performance that, I mean, she performs, it's a successful speech, but Keith almost views it as some sort of interpretive dance that she's (laughs) doing on stage. Um, Can we start with like... Was this uh, was this a tension between two styles that you wanted to explore, and and what did you want to kind of bring out in this? Absolutely, and that was something else that that I gleaned from public speaking competitions was that they don't allocate points to content, and retrospectively, I do think that that is a difficult thing to allocate points to, but because of the structure of how the judges score aspects of the speech certainly in that kind of Toastmasters world, it lends itself to being quite theatrical at the expense of having something interesting or meaningful to say. And I think other styles of public speaking competition are not necessarily like that, but this that is kind of the lens mm. for this. And so my initial interpretation of that was that it, it did favour style over substance and that you were sort of rewarding people who... Um, were charismatic or uh, polished at the expense of kind of the meaning of, of that they were trying to impart. Mm. But then there was this flip side to that, that again is that sort of sense of duality that is actually kind of nice because why should you judge what someone says? Like if, if we are saying everyone has a voice, then we not only have to listen, but you kind of have to listen without judgment. And so I think I thought that was kind of cool too, (laughs) but I mean, you take everything to its extreme. Um, And so Frances interpretive dance speech, she does do very well at, Um, but you know, the crowd is probably a bit mixed as to their reception of that. As I read this, it, it felt like I was, I was troubled and it felt really personal to me. So in my day job, I'm a speech pathologist and I meet and I work with many children who have difficulties with communicating their message and the thought that they might be prejudiced against. And, and, and in reality, many people will experience prejudice about the way they communicate. It, it felt very unfair to me. I also was reading this at a time I found myself in a, I'm going to be very um, diplomatic in case this person is listening. I found myself in a bit of a conversational tussle recently. Um, Someone near and dear described 
certain a certain political leader um, as lacking charisma, and hence this person wasn't going to engage with their ideas in a way that they might engage with more charismatic political leaders, mm. which I thought that's that's not good for our, you know, the running of our society if certain ideas just never get listened to because they're not presented charismatically. I wondered, have you thought about this? Is, is there in any way that charisma and style might be manipulative or even in some way discriminatory? I think there's truth to that and I um, reflect on exactly the same sort of situation that you're talking about because I don't think it's always been like that and I think there are certain technologies perhaps that uh, I think there is values that sort of have enhanced that idea of um, that 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 valuing of charisma, but I also think that social media and other types of technologies really do favour that sense of style and aesthetic and um, you know charisma mm. over. Yeah, I even just think about um, you know if if you ask someone about a great political speech, a lot of people can can whack out a bit of a you know a Churchill impression. Uh, or FDR, you know, that kind of thing. You know, people that predate us by many, many years. Um, and then we think more contemporarily, there was less, there is less focus on Barack Obama's long pauses than there is more generally about this very false, very discriminatory notion about around vocal fry and women and the ways that certain styles of speech, which for want of a better term might be called charismatic, like it's it's subjective and it can be used in a powerful way against people. Yeah, I think of um, the way that uh, younger women speak mm. as well is often really devalued. I was listening to a podcast recently where they were talking about the use of the word like mm. and that that is pretty maligned, um, you know, there's sort of that almost Jamae type impression of, you know, mm. and like, 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 but this, you know, they were looking at actually the way that like is used and the way that it um, softens language, the way that it, uh, yeah, it builds connection with people because it's, it's not hierarchical. It's, um almost the same way that sometimes you make a statement but you will upward inflect to make it sound like a question mm. that doesn't necessarily have to indicate a lack of confidence. It can sort of be a gift to the person that you're conversing mm. with. And I think it's very simplistic that um, interpretation of language and the use of language through a single lens. It often favours a particular type of communication. Yeah. I got a feeling you and I are probably listening to very similar podcasts. <laughs> and I just I just also want to drop in at the end where I, I was mentioning Vocal Fry and, and you were mentioning there the way um, young women particularly innovate with language. Linguists are now able to show that throughout history, it is actually young women that drive change in language. We owe the way we speak today to young women. Um, if it were left up to men, uh, we would, yeah, we, there wouldn't be as much innovation. There wouldn't be as much versatility. Um, 
And yeah, I'm probably going to have to drop some uh, some links in the show notes and things like that because I can't draw all these references immediately to mind. But it is it is particularly powerful, and and that actually does play out in the competition as well, where. I think where Frances has something very specific to confront to help her in her life, it's it's Keith that really does some very important growing and learning about the way he needs to be communicating in his world. Yeah, there's a moment in the piece where someone misinterprets what Keith says as Keith saying that he needs to be quiet more. <laughs> and he feels like he didn't really say that, but he kind of has to reflect on that idea. Uh, and I guess that's the flip side to an egalitarianism in who can take the stage is that uh, for some people to have more stage time, it means others who have had more have to have less. Mm. I'm, I'm searching for a way to wrap this up because without giving away spoil, I mean, you've called the book, the competition, there's literally something to spoil at the end of it. Um, it's it it has such a beautiful wrap up where perhaps things don't work out the way we might have predicted as we moved along but it's it is so so lovely was there any was there any sense of conflict for you about how you would end the book or did you always have a particular idea in mind i always knew the end which is makes it easier in some ways to write something. I think mm. um, I've certainly attempted short stories and different things, not knowing the end. And I feel like that is harder. I always knew the end. Um, and I consider the book like rather than a who done it, a who will win it. And that mm. sort of was the, the driving question that lay underneath it. I guess also, again, skirting around spoilers here, would be the question, like, would you consider following up the world of the competition? You, there, is, there are elements that you leave open. Yeah, there's definitely elements that I leave open. Mm. Um, yeah, I like that world. Mm. I, I, there's something about it that I think is really, really special. Um, so you never know. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> there's is always that, the world stage, isn't there? Is that something yeah. as a writer? I mean, now we're getting. Let's let's just briefly dip into your your podcast area. Your podcast is uh, that you um that you co-host with Kate Mildenhall is called the first time where you are very much looking at that process of getting published. But I mean, writing must include a lot of first times, and and considering writing a follow up, it would be a first time thing. It it makes you a writer who writes sequels. Is that something that you actually have to confront in your mind or would that just be an organic process? Um, I think I think that the end of a book, you have spent such a long time with these characters that I, I find it hard to say a definitive goodbye. Mm. And I think any end always should feel like the life goes on. You know that it's not, it's like the story of Princess Diana. You could have the end which is where she marries Prince Charles, but it went on. It, mm. You know, like I really feel like when characters are so alive, the end of a novel should feel like they continue to live beyond the novel. And I suppose that always opens the door for sequels. Personally, I like unexpected sequels that don't that feel, you know, not the the first book they find love, the next book um, they have a baby. You know, I like different mm. things to that. 
you're the, you're more of a wide Sargasso Sea type of how that might sit in a sequel type world type of person. I th- I think I take different characters. Like mm. I I do the same world, and maybe these people would be in it, but they they would different characters would be the feature of it. Oh, terrific! I guess I mean I guess it it also comes to where where the characters come from, and a writers talk in many different ways about where characters emerge, but once you've lived with them for a year, two years, it's very hard. They're, I, I, are they a part of your makeup now? You're, you're sort of, is there a little part of Francis and a little part of Keith always with you? Yeah, I, I do. I think you get to know them really well. Um, and yeah, you like them, you know, <laughs> they're flawed and imperfect, but they're, you know, you know them very intimately. Yeah, and that's and that is that was my reading experience too, where I started off like Keith was a bit of a barnacle type of, you know, he's one of those people that, you know, they're always there and they're very hard to shake off. And by the end, he was like, I want to see this person grow more. And and Francis, there are things we learn about Francis that I think at the time you reveal them, and this is this is very telling of how you um, set out your plot and and give us there was there, there's something in particular that you tell us and I think you probably are aware of what I'm going to be hinting at that had to be told when it was told because by the time you tell us this I cared enough about her for mm. this to be a, a really impactful really devastating thing whereas there might have been points early in the novel where it wouldn't have it wouldn't have grabbed me quite as much because I was still learning about Francis and learning to to mm. be fond of her. Yeah, the structure of this book nearly killed me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I wrote millions and millions of words. But that that as a, a writer, there's something appealing about working within constraints. So it, the book takes place across three days, but how much that's meaningful can happen in three days. Mm. So much to, to give that to anchor that you sort of need a lot that's happened before. Mm. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, terrific. We're we're entering that sort of technical but also spoilerish territory where I'm I'm yes, speaking right. I'm speaking in such vague sentences that it, it, it is almost <laughs> almost meaningless to a listener who is yet to pick up um, the competition. So it is probably a good point to wrap up, but except to say that there are so many other things we didn't pick up on. There is an incredible um incredible amount to say about mental health. There is an incredible amount you have to say about forgiveness, the idea of forgiveness and how we actually move through um, the transgressions in our life that we can't really talk about without giving away spoilers. So I, I feel like anyone who is interested needs to, you know, create a bit of a book club around the competition and, and unpack some of those ideas. But I am incredibly grateful for the time that I have had to speak with you, mm. Catherine. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Catherine Collette. Thank you to Catherine. Her new book is The Competition. It's out now from Text Publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. Thank you for joining me in uh, Final Drafts 30th birthday year. We're going to be celebrating all year. The podcast has not been around that long, but it is a digital celebration of the radio program. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch with us. Let us know what you're reading. Wish happy birthday. You'll find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser And subscribe in your podcast app. There will be a new great conversation every week. 
My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.